you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll be considering Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or anything else that you would like to use. So I say to you, hear the word of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, some of us eager uh, for a word, some of us uh, maybe uh, in despair, some of us tired. I pray, the Holy Spirit, that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would invigorate those uh, who are slothful in their faith. I pray that you would wake up those who, who are sleepy in their faith. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. I was thinking as we sang that last song, in some ways the, 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 the last lines of that song are, are basically the sermon this morning. So I'm just going to give you a benediction, right? None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Yeah, you all want more than that. Um, so, you know, every week I tend to try and start with a, a relevant question to get your sort of your mind thinking to engage you and I wasn't sure exactly how to ask this morning's question so but I want you to think through this in your family either you know if you're older you might have to think through when the kids were growing up or when you were a kid how did you guys handle seat saving was there ever any conflict or think about it this way, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got, like we had three kids, maybe you have four kids, five kids, six kids, however many kids you have. If you have more than one kid and you only have one front seat, how does that work? Right? As soon as you say, all right, get in the car, what does someone yell? Shotgun, right? So, so that, at least we know how that works. Now what happens if your whole family is watching a movie and some kids are there, some kids aren't there, and you're getting ready, everyone's, kids have the most comfortable seat that they've chosen, they may be even looking forward to it all day, and they get up to go to the bathroom, and one of their siblings comes in and sits in their seat. How's that work? Does, does the sibling who lost his or her seat just say, I'm so glad that you got to sit in that comfy seat rather than I did? I'm gonna suffer for the gospel and sit off to the side. What do they always say? I was there first. 
In, in other words, in a lot of these situations, the way we, the, the, what we often appeal to is priority or historical priority. Why is that my seat? Because I was there first. Now, at some point, you have to think, well, you know, when you get up for 30 minutes and you go out of the house and come back, that doesn't count. But historical priority always, also helps us understand why no one gets to sit in my seat, right? Because I was there before all of them. You see how that works? As we look at the, this book of Galatians up to this point, remember in the, the, the whole point of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has planted this church, and he is, he's basically planted it by telling people that the way people are saved for, from their sins is by faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else gets added. And people said, that's cool. They trusted Jesus. They started this church. And Paul went on to start another church. And while he was gone, some people came in and said, you know what? Paul was cool and all that. But if you really want to be a good Christian, you should also probably be circumcised. And if you really want to be good, get circumcised and obey all these Jewish laws. In other words, they didn't tell people that they shouldn't trust Jesus. They said, trust Jesus, but, then if, you, but if you want to be sure, if you really want to be sure that you're a child of Abraham or anything else like that, what you need to do is also obey the Jewish law. And Paul heard of this, and he wrote back, and he said, absolutely not. If you remember the, what I've been telling you every week, that Paul basically tells them in the first two chapters of this book that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In other words, if you, if you take Jesus and you start adding things on, you basically nullify all of the work that he did on your behalf. On the other hand, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. And, you know, people push back against that and, and said, well, who is Paul anyway? What is he, like the 13th apostle? Is there even such a thing? And so Paul had to make a case for his own authority. He had to make a case for the gospel that he preaches. And then by the time we get to chapter 3... It's as if he turned to the congregation and said, now congregation, let me talk to you. And remember verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, he started by saying, oh foolish Galatians. Ugh. Foolish Galatians. And he asked us a number of questions. He appealed to their experience of the gospel. Right? He said, did you, did you start the gospel by works of the law or by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? These are all rhetorical questions. He said, do you think you're going to finish because God's going to complete the work in you or because you're such a good person? And he said, let's talk about right now. How are you living right now? Are all the miracles that God is doing among you, are they by his spirit or are they by works of the law? And all of the questions lead us back to say, it's God's work, it's God's work, it's God's work. Last week, he, so the, so the in verses 1 through 5, he appealed to their experience of the gospel. And then last week, we looked and he, he appealed to the Old Testament for the gospel. And he, he looked at Abraham as the example of those who would be justified by faith alone without works of the law. Remember that, that we talked about this, that God made a covenant with Abraham, and it said that Abraham believed. He believed the promise of God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul says, so because of that, the, 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 those who are made right with God are made right by faith alone, whether it's Abraham or all those who would follow him. And he, in fact, he said, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So he's, he's appealed to their experience. He appeals to the Old Testament. And this week, we're going to look at the text. He appeals to history or the historical priority of the promise of Abraham versus the law of Moses. So basically, we're going to only look at two things this morning. We're going to 
the, the two things we're going to look at is the priority of the promise, that's the promise to Abraham, and the purpose of the law. Okay, so the priority of the promise and the purpose of the law. So as we consider the priority of the promise, let me read to you again verses 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And I'll read the next verse. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So but what's, what's, why is he, what is he talking about here? Well, he basically says, let me give you a human example, or let me give you a, a sermon illustration, or let me tell you a story related to real life as to how this works. Now, part, part of this, you need to understand the context, is that God made this promise to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed, you will have descendants that outnumber the stars of the sky. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and then 430 years later, the law came. Right, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that would follow that God gave to Moses. And so what, what basically the agitators had come in to say is just this, is that, you know, okay, God gave the promise to Abraham, but then when he gave the law to Moses, the law supersedes or the law takes the place of the promise. Or they even would make the case that the law is the latest thing, right? If we believe that God reveals himself progressively, he revealed the promise, and then the next biggest, greatest thing is the law. So that's what Paul is, is addressing here. And so they say that, and Paul basically is saying, not so fast. Let me give you a human example. Let me, let's talk about how things work in, in your everyday life. And so when he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, he, he's talking about wills there, like the, your last will and testament before you die. And in the, the Greek world and the Roman world, once you ratified that, once you made it, once you, everyone signed off on your, your will, you couldn't change it. It was as simple as that. So that's what Paul's appealing to. He's saying once you make a will and you sign it, you can't change it. It, it is what it is. And so his point is how much more the promises of God. So, so if, God, if, if you make a covenant with somebody and ratify it and it can't be changed, how much more is a covenant that God makes and ratifies. How much more can that thing not be changed as well? So what he's saying is, is that just because the law came after the promise, it doesn't mean the promise is no longer valid. The question is, how does the promise and the law relate to one another? And the next thing he says, it's sort of odd. Now, by the way, this passage is one of the hardest in the New Testament. And at some point, you'll probably hear me say, you know what? I don't know what this means. And sometimes we just have to say that. But where he goes next is interesting because he immediately appeals to Abraham, but he appeals to the, the offspring of Abraham. Notice what he says, verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So what is his point there? In some ways, Paul is playing games with grammar. Because if you, say, if you say the word family, is that a plural noun or a singular noun? Right? It's, a, it's a singular noun, but it refers to a, lot of, a, a group of, of people. And so when God said to Abraham, you'll have many offspring, and through, the, through your offspring, the nations will be blessed, we tend to read that by saying, I'm assuming he means many people, and I think he does in many ways. But what Paul is doing is he's choosing to interpret that 
that noun that refers to many people to in a singular fashion. And he says the promise was actually made to Abraham's offspring. And that offspring is Christ. And what is he saying there? In other words, he's saying that the promise that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring is fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus is the one in whom and through whom all of the nations will be blessed. Jesus is the one in whom and through whom that when we have faith, we are saved from our sins. And he goes on and he says in verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but it comes by... But, but, but Daniel previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And so what's the point here? Remember in Genesis 15, we talked about last week how God ratified this covenant with Abraham. He made the covenant, I will bless you, I will, I, I'm gonna bless the nations through you, I'm gonna make your descendants as great as the stars in the heaven, I'm gonna give you this land, and then God ratified it through that ceremony where he cut the pieces in half, and where basically the kings would walk through, and as the kings walked through, they would say, what happens if I don't obey my side of the covenant, may what happened to these pieces happen to me. And we saw that God walked through instead of Abraham. That God promises that if he breaks his part of the covenant, he'll bear the curse, but also if Abraham or his offspring break the covenant, that he will bear the curse. So the covenant has been ratified by God, and ultimately the covenant is ratified by the cross of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who would bear the curse that God made with Abraham. Jesus was the one who would bear the curse that God made with Adam. Jesus is the one who bears the curse that God, or, or the covenant, the curse of the covenant that God makes with us. Will we obey the law or will we not? Remember last week, we, Paul says that if you're going to rely on works of the law, then you have to obey all of them. In other words, if you say, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be a good person. I'm just going to obey the works of the law and hope for the best when I get to heaven. And Paul would say, I think that's cool. You can do that if you want to. The, the problem is, is are you prepared to obey every single law perfectly all the time? And you'd say, well, I don't even know what the, all the laws are. Well, then we come back and say, well, let's consider your own low moral standard. Are you willing to stand before God and say, I lived according to my own moral standard 100% of the time? We can't. And so either you're going to bear the curse for that or Jesus will bear the curse. And what the gospel says is that Jesus himself has bared the curse. And consider verse 18, as you consider the priority of the promise. He says, for the inheritance comes by the law. It no, if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In, in other words, Paul is laying things down out here in a sort of binary fashion. He says, if it, the, on one hand, he says, if the inheritance comes by law, then it no longer comes by promise. An inheritance by definition is grace right you can't do anything to gain your inheritance other than than someone gr granted to you now i guess you can make the case that oh, i worked really hard and i was a good child or i was this or that but at the end of the day it is it's you're you're at the the mercy of the person who's granting you the inheritance and he says and if it's by law then it's it's no longer by grace or it's no longer by promise and then verse 18 he says but god gave it to abraham by a promise and so the, if the inheritance doesn't come by law, but comes by promise, 
the question is, is what's purpose, what's purpose of the law? You know, every week when I'm preparing my sermons, the first thing I do is I literally type out the whole text and I sort of outline it and I'm asking questions as I go along and I'm trying to follow the argument. And when I got to this part of the thing, I, I wrote in all caps, then what's the purpose of the law? If Paul, if you keep saying that it's all about the promise and the promise comes before the law and the, the law doesn't annul the promise, then why in the world would God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? Paul anticipates that. So the very first thing he says in verse 19 is this, why then the law? And he talks now about the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? Why was the law added then if the promise wasn't supposed to go away? And Paul says something here that's relatively ambiguous on one hand. On the other hand, it makes sense. He says the law, it was added because of transgressions. What does he mean by that? That when he says the law was added because of transgressions. Now there's probably, there's probably two different ways that you could take this. Both of them are valid. He may mean both. I don't think he does. The first way that we might read this is when he says it was added because of transgressions is what theologians would call one of the purposes of the law. And one of the purposes of the law is to restrain wickedness. In other words, the reason we have laws generally in society is just purely to restrain wickedness. And so God gave the law so that people would know what sin was and that there would be cons- they would know also what the consequences were for breaking the law and that they would be deterred from that because of the, the punishment that might come. So, for example, we, we, our whole lives are built around this, prop, you know, this premise. When you consider what are the purpose of stop signs? Stop signs, just, they're, they're, stop signs are all about the law. They just tell you to stop. And there, if you don't stop, what happens? There is a, a threatened curse, if you will. There, there's a ticket that you can have if you don't get, uh, if you get caught running the stop sign. You know, this weekend I was at um, Fort Benning visiting my daughter, Fort Benning, Georgia. It's this huge military post. And within 30 seconds, I was reacqu- uh, 30 seconds of driving onto the post, I was reacquainted with my old friends, the military police. I mean, it, w- it literally was not 30 seconds. As soon as I crossed through, suddenly the, the, the lights came on in the car, and the, milita- the MP gets out of the car, and he comes up to me, and he says, Sir, do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> and he, he had every right. I, I, and I said, No, I don't. I said, But you know what? I'm just an old ranger here to see my daughter graduating from airborne school. <laughs> And I was so excited, I wasn't even looking at my speedometer. Now, he could have said, I don't care. Here's a ticket, pay it. Instead, he rolled his eyes, told me to watch my speed, and he told me to make sure I turned my lights on. You see, I was just like basically this rolling criminal, and I didn't know it. And he had every right to throw the book at me. That's what the law restrains wickedness. That's why the MPs are there. The MPs are there is because people like me tend to not pay attention and speed. And for the rest of the weekend, honestly, and you can ask my daughter who was driving with me, I was paranoid. Because speed limit changes all over post. And I was constantly, I drove 25 miles an hour the whole time. I haven't driven that fast in my whole life. Why? Because I was afraid of getting caught. So when Paul says the law was added because of transgressions, that's, he might be talking about that. 
that the law restrains our wickedness because we're afraid of getting caught. We're afraid of the punishment that might come if we get caught breaking the law. That's probably not what he's talking about in this passage, however. There's a second purpose of the law. You see, the second purpose of the law, when he says it was added because of transgressions, what the law does is it shows us our sinfulness and drives us back to the promise. In in other words, what the law does is it's like a mirror. If you say, well, I'm a good person, and then you put the mirror of the law to your face and say, oh, maybe I'm not. Right? Remember, a few years ago, I preached through the Ten Commandments, and it was eye-opening. It was eye-opening for the congregation. It was eye-opening for me. Because when we think about things like the law, when you think of things, commandments, like, like don't, don't murder, most of us would say, I've never murdered anybody. But remember, there's all a positive side to the law as well. The positive side to the law is to give life. The positive side of the law is to constantly be a blessing. The positive side of the law is to constantly be encouraging. Do you do that? I don't. In other words, the deeper you get into the law, the more messy it becomes when you try and think, am I obedient to it? And so I think what Paul is actually getting at here is that the law was added because of transgressions, because on one hand, it shows us, it drives us to back to the promise. On the other hand, it, it actually sort of goads us to sin more. And we see that when the law is added, we actually become more sinful in some sense. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I would have probably had a lot fewer trips to the emergency room if my parents had woken up in the morning and said, Tommy, here's what we want you to do this morning. We want you to go get that big banana seat huffy, and we want you to build a huge ramp, and we want you to actually, under the ramp, we want you to put broken glass and pipes and anything else that might give you tetanus under that ramp, and we want you to see if you can do it. And I would have said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to stay inside and do homework instead. (laughs) But what did my parents say? Tommy, don't build a ramp. Don't Don't be stupid. What did I do? I had to build the ramp. I had to see what I was missing. Tommy, don't go on the rope swing. You'll break your arm. Broke my arm. Tommy, stay off of that rope swing or something worse is going to happen. Broke my back. Now, if they would have said, Tommy, okay, it's going to be a beautiful sunny day. What we want you to do is go down to the, to the intercoastal with all your buddies and just try and kill yourself on that rope swing. <laughs> Homework. That's what I'd have done. There is something about the law that makes us want to sort of bucket. And so when we consider, you know, the, the gospel and all, how this, this, all of this works together, uh, we see that the, where, how do the law and the promise relate? So on one hand, the, the, the promise is made and it's all grace. On the other hand, the law comes along and it drives us back to the promise. Can you fulfill the law? You can't. And so if you can't fulfill the law, you go running to grace on one hand. On the other hand, basically what the law does, we see that the, the promise is fulfilled in Jesus, but we also see that the law is fulfilled in Jesus. How do the law and the promise relate? On one hand, the law drives us back to the promise. On the other hand, what we see is that while Jesus fulfills the promise, he also fulfills the law. In the Old Testament, there are basically three types of law. There was moral law, there was ceremonial law, and there was judicial law. Moral law are things like the Ten Commandments. Ceremonial law, it could also be called sacrificial law. 
and judicial law was given for if you broke the first two types of law, right? What are the punishments? What are the curses? And Jesus came along and he fulfilled the moral law. He never sinned one time. He fulfilled the sacrificial law. Not only did he fulfill it by doing it right, he fulfilled it by becoming it. He was not only the, the, the priest, but he was also the lamb without blame. He was the lamb without blemish who was given for the sins of the world. And Jesus bore all of the law, the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law on our behalf. And so either Jesus bears the curse for you, or, or we bear the curse ourselves. And here's the thing. If the promise is true, and Jesus has fulfilled the promise, and Jesus has fulfilled the law, the law has no claim on you anymore. It has no claim on you. There's a third use of the law. Right, so theologians say one use of the law is to restrain wickedness. One use of the law is to drive us to Christ. And the third use of the law is to actually teach us how to live out the gospel. The law isn't bad, by the way. The law is, is a template that was fulfilled by Jesus, but it's also something we should strive to follow, not in order to be saved, but in order to be like Jesus. You see, the law has purpose. It just has no claim on you. The law doesn't judge you anymore. Only Jesus can judge you, and Jesus gave himself for you. And so let me ask you this question. How free do you feel this morning? Most people I know do not walk around with an incredible sense of freedom. Most Christians I know don't walk around with an incredible sense of freedom, with hope and with joy, and knowing that the law has no claim on them, knowing that I've made mistakes in my past, knowing that I've screwed up, and yet I know that at the end of the day, God is going to finish the good work he's done in me, not because of the law, but because of the promise. How many of you feel that way? Notice what the, the last thing Paul says. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In some sense, I think what he's getting at here is that, that what the law has done, the scripture, I think that's what Paul is using that as a synonym for the law, has imprisoned everything under sin so that we would have no choice but to either choose that life or to choose the free life of being in Christ by the promise. And if you don't have freedom, let me read to you. I'll close with this. One of my favorite books, um, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress. Basically, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about this man named Christian who, who is going on this journey and basically his sins are taken away and, and after his sins are taken away, he goes on this journey to the celestial city. And along the way, different things happen to him and on the way, he meets certain people. And at this point in the story, basically, he, on the way to the celestial city, he's with his friend named Hopeful, and as they're walking the celestial city, they decide to take a shortcut. In other words, they leave the narrow path, they try to take a, a shortcut across the, uh, a meadow, and they're captured by this giant, and the giant throws them into a dungeon, and the dungeon is called the Dungeon of Despair. And so they're trapped in this dungeon of despair, and the giant keeps coming to them, and he doesn't kill them, he just wants to make them feel so guilty that they don't want to live anymore which in some sense is worse. And so they're mired away. They're in this dungeon. They don't know what to do. And they're completely in despondency and despair. And then that's where we pick up the story. It says, now a little before it was day, good, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in a passionate speech, 
What a fool am I, <laughs> thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk with liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I believe, open any lock in Doubting Castle. You see, as they were traveling to the celestial city, there was a, a man they met named Evangelist, and he shared the gospel with them, and he gave them this key called promise, and he says, this promise will deliver you from anything. Wear it around your neck. And so Christian has been in Doubting Castle in despondency and despair, and suddenly he realized, I've got the whole key. It has been around my neck the whole time. Then said Hopeful, <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I should animate this more. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. <laughs> then Christian pulled, out of his, pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave way. And the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. And then he went to the outward door that leads to the castle, into the castle yard. And with his key, he opened that door also. And after that, he went with an iron gate, for he had opened that too. And although the lock was exceedingly hard, finally... The key did open it. So let me ask you this. If you're a Christian here, do you ever despair? Do you ever worry? Are you ever overcome by anxiety? Because if you are, I want you to hear, remember this story this morning. You have this promise as if it were wrapped around your neck. And it can open any, any door in Doubting Castle. It can it, open any, any way out of Anxiety Alley, however you want to put it. But the question is, are you going to rely on the promise of God or will you rely on works of the law? Works of the law will only lead to more despair. The promise of God leads to hope and health and freedom. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, in my house, I wrote down, <laughs> do, do you ever say, woe is me, everything is hard, nothing's easy, ask my family if they ever hear that. You know what I have to say to myself? Behold, there is a key around your neck. Behold, there's the promise of God. And hopeful, Judy has to say, Tommy, put it in the lock. You have it. Now use it. Encourage one another with those things. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that we would not rely on works of the law, but on the promise. And that we would use the laws that was intended to be used to drive us to, to the promise, to drive us to Christ, to restrain even our own wickedness, to give us uh, the way in which we should live, that, that that you intended on one hand, on the other hand, uh, let us never rely on it to save us from our sins, for Jesus has done that. In Christ's name we pray all these things, amen and amen.